Hello and welcome to the latest episode of In Beta, where we ask the big questions about human rights in the digital age. I'm Charles Bradley, GBD's Executive Director, and today we'll be asking the question, is civil society in the Global South sustainable? But first, what do we mean by sustainability here? There's a lot of dimensions to this word, but as someone who runs a civil society organisation, for me what it really means is the ability to plan ahead, to be able to develop and implement a long-term strategy, as well as knowing that if something unexpected happens, there's a safety net in place. This has always been difficult to achieve for civil society organisations, particularly those working in the global south, and the situation seems to be getting worse. The challenges we face are getting bigger, and the number of donors and the level of resource available is being squeezed. At the same time, there's a growing trend of governments restricting foreign funding for civil society, which is putting a lot of pressure on groups. In the digital rights field, where my organisation operates, the strain is already starting to show. These are urgent issues for both civil society and the donor community, and I wanted to hear from both sides. So in this episode, I'll be speaking to three people with different perspectives on this question. A civil society voice, a traditional donor, and a non-traditional donor. So without further ado, let me introduce my first guest. I think the first thing to say is that the internet policy world, if I could call it that, has a fairly unique challenge compared to many other issues that civil society groups are dealing with. This is Andrew Puddafat. Among other things, he's chairman of GPD's advisory board, council member of the ECFR and board member of the Sigurd Rousing Trust. I wanted to find out what his take was on the challenges and trends facing civil society in the Global South, particularly groups working on digital issues. Internet policy happens in very many different places. It happens through a series of technical bodies. It happens in a series of regional and global policy environments. And it happens in the side issues in existing human rights and other policy discussions, such as the Human Rights Council or even the General Assembly. So one of the challenges for civil society is there's no one place to focus your advocacy efforts. You have to have the capacity to deal with national policy developments. You really need the capacity to deal with regional policy, if that's a relevant forum, which it is in certainly Latin America, Europe and Africa. And then you need to be able to decide which of the multiple global policy environments you're going to intervene in. And some of them require quite detailed technical knowledge, and some of them are relatively inaccessible to civil society, such as the International Telecommunications Union, where you really need to be part of a government delegation in order to participate fully in the deliberations. So unlike an issue like climate change, where, if you like, all of the civil society groups could home in on the Paris climate talks and focus the energies both at the grassroots level and at the global policy level in one place, within the internet world, you're maybe covering 40 or 50 different forums, which means no one organisation can cover all of them, which places a very high requirement on coordination between civil society groups globally, and also coordination between what might think of as the grassroots organisations organising at the community or national level and the grass tips organisation, which are organising the policy debates at the global level. And that's the real weakness that we have, is that we don't have sufficient capacity to cover all of those forums in the kind of level of expert detail that we need to have to make a real impact when we get a hearing. And we don't have the coordination between the national organisations and local organisations and those wider international bodies. So there's a there's a, a real coordination gap and there's also a policy and expertise gap that, that is a real challenge for people to fill. Alongside that, I think you have to place 
the, the challenges that civil society groups face is that many groups in the global south can't raise funds locally or find it very difficult to raise funds locally because they don't have the same network of, of charitable foundations or, or, or donors or they face hostile governments that make funding very difficult to achieve. So there's an increasing reliance in recent years on a relatively small number of international donors. And that raises two challenges. One is those donors themselves find their priorities changing. So you have a a foundation like the Ford Foundation, which has shifted from field building to problem solving. And that impacts on the way that groups can get and access money from the foundation. Others simply have moved out of the field altogether. Uh, And at the same time, you have the problem of domestic laws increasingly coming in, often called foreign agent laws, which make it very difficult for organisations to raise money from foreign donors. And it does raise genuine questions of legitimacy. If you're an organisation based in country X and you're wholly funded by donors from country Y, then there are bound to be questions about what is your legitimacy as a national organisation when you're almost wholly dependent on foreign funding. And that's so, so there's, a, there's a funding squeeze that's both legislative, a legitimacy question, and also a declining number of, of, of donors willing to invest in the field relative to the demand. Because the other thing one notices is that, as has happened, it's been an, ex, uh, an objective trend for 20 or 30 years, is the number of NGOs increases all the time. NGOs don't tend to disappear. They tend to carry on for the most part. And if they tend to multiply rather than merge. So you're, you're seeing an increasing number of organisations, uh, a di- relatively diminishing resource pool, uh, a tough legislative climate in which to operate, a set of legitimacy questions, and a vast array of different forums in which to, mul- in which to operate. So you're, you're facing, I would say, quite a significant challenge if you look at other fields where civil society is an active contributor and shaper of policy, The challenges in the internet policy world, I think, are greater than most other comparable uh, policy fields. So if these are the challenges facing civil society, what needs to change? Well, I think the obvious obvious first step is there's a need for greater coordination and cooperation among civil society organisations. It is simply not going to be possible to impact on the kind of forums where real decisions will be made in the next four or five years unless civil society groups can cooperate and agree to share expertise, share knowledge, and if you like, to agree to cover one forum while somebody else covers another forum. There needs to be a division of labour applied so that at least there's some adequate response uh, in the different places where things happen. I think secondly, there needs to be greater investment in skills and policy knowledge, um, certainly technically, and we need to have groups who have the technical knowledge to intervene in technical forums and have sensible things to say. If we're to work at the ITU, we need people with a detailed regulatory knowledge who are able to stand up in a forum with uh, telecoms or regulating bodies who are representing their respective governments and to be able to interact with them on an equal basis. And we need people who have the, if you like, the credibility to speak sensibly and seriously. Uh, I think for a lot of uh, civil society organisations, they come from a, a protest and rejection movement. And so a, a lot of time is invested by groups in developing their position and what they think about something. And, and very little thought is given to how to interact with policy-making bodies in order to communicate that position. So it's not enough, for example, to simply say, 
this is what we believe, you have to identify the opportunities to intervene in a forum and identify the problems and then say, this is how we can solve this problem with the policy solutions that we have. So it's about developing the more sophisticated advocacy that goes beyond the simple elevation of your own priorities or your own principles, which is obviously the starting point for any advocacy, understanding what it is you believe, but it needs to be taken on in a more sophisticated step. So there's a need for an investment in greater capacity building in the advocacy skills, greater capacity in the knowledge building, and greater sharing. And then I think the other, on on the funding side, I think we need to start thinking about imaginative ways of raising funds. The, The reality is that with a small number of exceptions, the amount of general or even project funds that are going to be available for this kind of work is not going to increase substantially in the next five to ten years. Um, There are new donors coming to the field, like in the tech companies and tech entrepreneurs who've made a lot of money, but they're often looking to fund problems rather than organisations, or they're looking to fund new initiatives rather than existing grant-consuming bodies. So thinking about the organisational form of activity, thinking about how you can raise at least a small proportion of local funds. I remember working with a transparency of information organisation in Pakistan that ran a recycling business in its, uh, on the side in, in some street markets in, in Peshawar and, and Karachi. And they raised about 5 to 10% of their income that way. And that just gave them a little bit of local rooted legitimacy because they could point to some domestic profile and some domestic fundraising. So some imagination about local fundraising, some imagination about organisational forms and development, greater collaboration, investment in skills, and investment in capacity building. I think those are the... It's a big agenda, but I think those are the things that, that need to happen. Speaking to Andrew gave me a good sense of what's going on within civil society and what the challenges are. Next, I wanted to hear from the people funding civil society, the donor community. Um, we're seeing a few different trends, I think. Um, and one thing that we've heard from a lot of donors is that they're moving their funds more locally um, in response to some of the deterioration of human rights and the rule of law that we're seeing in a lot of different parts of the world. This is Julie Broom, the director of Ariadne, a European peer-to-peer network of more than 600 funders and philanthropists who support social change and human rights. The first thing I wanted to ask Julie was quite a broad question. What does she see as the key trends in philanthropy at the moment? I think, you know, donors who are now, who are based in Europe or the United States have now started to become a little bit concerned about what's happening in their own backyard. Um, And in a reaction to that, they're pulling back a little bit, um, thinking, okay, actually, maybe we've been focused on the rest of the world, but we have problems of our own to deal with. and that's resulting in some money kind of flowing back towards the north. Um, so it's a li- it's too early, I think, to really predict exactly how that's going to play out over the next couple of years. But I think there's at least a potential uh, that we'll see a reduction of funding dedicated to the global south, whereas there was a trend for a number of years of money moving more and more to the south. Um, I think that the reduction in availability of public funding um, in European countries as well, um, both for domestic issues and for international aid, 
um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of bilateral donors have said that they need to divert money to address the refugee crisis, and therefore they can't support human rights and development issues overseas at the same level that they previously were. That's had a few different impacts for um, the private donor community, and I think one of the one of the silver linings of that is that there's a greater openness towards co-funding and collaboration amongst them, um, not just between private donors, but I think also between private donors and public donors, governments and, and business. So there's sort of a, an interest in looking at who are the other people that we could be working with to solve these problems. Um, and because the issues are so big, I think some donors who've previously taken a very narrow view of what an issue is um, are looking to kind of break down silos, work with people in, in different areas um, to try to really come up with an adequate holistic response to what we're seeing. Um, I think the other big trend that I've seen is a, a recognition amongst foundations and that they themselves and their grantees um, have been existing in a little bit of a bubble um, where they may not have widespread support um, in society because they're talking to just one particular group of people. Um, so I think there's an interest in, in trying to find who are the unlikely allies, who are these unlikely suspects that we could work with um, and engage more, and a desire amongst foundations to really improve their communications capacity um, and learn to deliver a, a message, whereas you know they haven't had to be a PR machine in the past. They give money so everyone knows where to find them. Uh, but now I think there's an idea that you know, we have a message to, to give, um, we have values to support, and we need to start to be a little bit more outward facing in doing that. So that covers the key trends, but I want to find out specifically what kinds of conversations were happening amongst donors. I think one of the biggest concerns right now that's bringing donors together is what we've referred to as the, the closing space for civil society. Um, it's not a perfect term, um, but it refers to the restrictions that we're seeing on NGOs um, really across the globe, uh, foreign funding regulations, and the, the impact, this includes the impact of counterterrorism measures on NGOs, which have been really debilitating in certain contexts. Um, so donors have really come together to respond to this. Um, it started in, as a reaction to the foreign funding regulations, but I think, uh, you know, there's a, an idea that donors have a certain responsibility towards their grantees um, to really help them through this particular challenge. Uh, so one thing that has come out of that is um, an initiative called the Funders Initiative for Civil Society, which brings together uh, three major uh, human rights donor networks, so that includes Ariadne, uh, the International Human Rights Funders Group, and the European Foundation Center has been involved. Uh, and there's also a group of 11 or 12 donors who are committed to that and have been involved. So that's um, really kind of brought people together to develop a strategic response to this problem, not just practical workarounds to get the money into these countries, but really a pushback um, and trying to stem the tide that is coming our way. 
that conversation has primarily been focused on human rights donors so far because human rights organizations were some of the first ones to be affected by this trend. Um, but we're now trying to expand that conversation to include a wider range of donors from other sectors. So um, environmental donors, international development donors, for example. Um, and this trend, you know, it, it's affecting everybody. It's happening in so-called democratic countries or countries that we previously understood to be democratic, such as uh, Western Europe and the United States. Um, but it's happening everywhere, and it often requires a, a contextualized response. So we're engaging with donors and partner organizations in the global south to ensure that the response is adequate and appropriate to their local context. Um, just one other conversation I, I mentioned is that there's a, there's a discussion amongst donors in how to become more inclusive in their decision making. And this goes back to what I was saying about um, you know, donors finding that they themselves and uh, sometimes their partners don't have real roots in society and they don't necessarily have widespread support. And I think there's a recognition that if you're going to be really responding to the needs of a community that you have to have the views of that community involved in making those decisions. So some donors have been experimenting with participatory grant making models that bring representatives of the beneficiary community into the grant making process. Um, so I think we're not likely to see a really large scale shift in that direction, but I think it signals an important recognition that, that there are power imbalances in philanthropy and that those need to be addressed in some way. I wanted to dig a bit deeper into this idea of collaboration. What criteria does Julie use to judge a successful collaboration? Um, I think it's important to understand that collaboration can take many different forms. Um, so I try to view it as a, a spectrum of different levels of involvement. I think that's more comfortable for foundations. Um, foundations are inherently constrained by the sort of institutional guidelines that they have, by their own missions, by their own priorities. Um, and it often isn't easy for them to you know, completely shift to something else. Um, so I think that you know, this can be anything from sharing information to aligned funding to a pooled fund. You know, it's a kind of a gradation. And I think that ultimately any good collaboration is really about the results. It's about you know, strategically addressing a problem and ensuring that any gaps in addressing the need are, are filled. So that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's funding the exact same thing. Um, but there's a role for everyone to make sure that if you're looking at the problem holistically, uh, that the solution is also holistic and you know, people can be funding different parts of that. So there are a few different uh, collaboratives out there that don't necessarily put a lot of pressure on foundations to fund a specific thing, but it's more about bringing them together to understand how, they, how all of the funding that they're doing fits and then recognizing where there are gaps and identifying who can fill those. So it's the million dollar question, but whilst I had Julie here, I wanted to hear her perspective on what donors are looking for in potential fundees. Um, I mean, I think for most 
donors. I mean, especially for social change donors, like the ones that we're working with. Um, one of the key things is the ability to have an impact on the issue that you're trying to address. Um, so usually that means looking at the track record and saying, you know, what, what has this organization achieved in the past? Um, but obviously there are sometimes new organizations. And so it's about that potential for impact. You know, what is the um, theory of change that this organization is articulating? And um, what's their strategy and their plan um, for doing that? Um, I think, you know, that, again, the connection to a beneficiary group and, and the legitimacy to be able to address the problem that you're addressing is really important. Um, you know, so, for example, amongst disabled rights or disability rights organizations, it's often very important that you have disabled people on staff or that you at least have strong connections um, with the people who are going to be benefiting from this work so that you actually understand what the issues are and what the appropriate solutions are. Um, I think there's always, always amongst donors a desire to find something fresh and to find something new. Um, and sometimes that drives organizations crazy when they're you know, told we, we're looking for innovation, we're looking for innovation. But I think you know, if you can make a convincing argument as to why the traditional methods or the methods that you have been working are actually being successful, um, you know, there are many donors will will listen to that. And, you know, of course, foundations are bound by their own, you know, their legal requirements on them from charity commissions, etc. Uh, and they have a responsibility of due diligence. So any donor is going to be looking for financial viability, for evidence that there's no misuse of funds, um, looking for a governance structure that they can trust, where there are checks and balances and clear lines of responsibility. Um, and I think that that's the area where, you know, typically a red flag would, would go up for a donor. On the other hand, I think right now we're seeing a challenge for foundations because they're starting to recognize that these professionalized NGOs are not necessarily the heart of where change is happening. Um, and there's a recognition that, you know, these looser social movements and, uh, you know, informal groups of people are actually making a big impact, something like Black Lives Matter, for example. And there's an interest amongst donors to try to support that work, but at the same time, you know, you don't necessarily have all of those same structures uh, to really evaluate in the way that you traditionally would. So this is something that we're actually working with our members with on right now. Um, we're planning a Grand Skills Day for later this year to try to help them through that challenge um, because I think the, the, the nature of what social change organizations look like is starting to shift. Julie's perspectives on these issues is fascinating and gives us a lot of insight into how the traditional donor community is responding to questions around sustainability in civil society. In the final part of this episode, we're going to hear from another donor, but one coming at these issues from a slightly different angle. It strikes me that private philanthropy is in a really privileged position in the sense that it isn't held to the same level of accountability as the large NGOs. And I think this enables private philanthropists to take risks and think outside the box. You know, you can do things that other organizations probably wouldn't do. 
This is Kilan, founder of the Kays Foundation, which funds projects relating to early years education in Kenya. They're taking a different approach to other donors, which I wanted to find out more about. Here's Kilan describing their approach and why it's different. So, so the driving force behind the Case Foundation is the desire to improve outcomes for young people by creating lasting, sustainable change at scale. Um, so our mission, very broadly speaking, is to create an environment that enables Kenyan solutions to address Kenyan systemic problems. So you can split that into two parts, really. So why systemic? Well, I think when you look around at the real root causes of poverty and inequality, we're not talking about symptomatic causes. You know, people aren't poor because they can't eat. People are poor because governments don't work properly. And, you know, diseases spread quickly because health services aren't working as they should do and kids don't learn because schools aren't fit for purpose. So our approach is to try and address the problem from a system-level point of view. Um, And I think this sits in contrast to what a lot of private donors do. Um, When you look at private uh, philanthropic programming, it tends to be the very sort of tried and tested, very 1970s version of, you know, sending books across to sub-Saharan Africa and hoping that that in some way improves education outcomes. But when you really look at the statistics around learning, for example, in Kenya, you find that, well, you know, kids are in school and kids do have books, but they're not making a difference. And so our aim is to take a slightly longer term approach and think about how we can address the root causes. And I think a, a good example of what that might look like is if we were approached by two organisations seeking grant funding and one was proposing to build a school and the other one was proposing to research into teacher training, we would, at the Case Foundation, be inclined to fund the latter. Now, the reason being that if you carry out some interesting research around teacher training and you yield some results which can be implemented from a policy point of view, your money spent on that research has actually unlocked the potential of billions of pounds worth of spending which can improve education quality and sort of teaching quality not just for the people that might attend one school but for the whole country so through small amounts of philanthropic capital you can actually have huge impact and you can really um you can really affect the lives of millions millions of uh, people the other part of our mission so why fund kenyan solutions well i think broadly there's two reasons for that and i guess one would be termed slightly more practical and one would I guess could be termed as slightly more moral philosophical and from a practical point of view I think when you talk about development you're talking about something that exists at sort of the nexus of you know economics and politics and social dynamics it's very context specific now while I don't think that there's no value to external influence and external assistance and certainly external funding I think that really the driving energy behind any kind of wide-scale lasting change has to be organic you know it has to come from within the country to be sustainable and actually meaningful and so for that reason you know we prefer to fund ideas that are homegrown Um, and then you sort of come on to the philosophical moral reasons behind it and you know I guess at the Case Foundation and you know amongst a growing section of people within development there's a rejection of the idea that wealthy people from wealthy countries can simply fly over you know seven hours on a plane to somewhere in sub-saharan africa and just kind of fix 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 problems you know 
I don't think that it's our job to say what's right and wrong. I don't think that it's our job to, you know, moralize or, um, you know, teach people, you know, what to do. I think our efforts should really be focused on working with in-country partners to sort of create an environment that allows people to thrive. You know, I, I don't believe in this one-way didactic model of development where you tell a bunch of people what to do and they do it and things get better for them. I think, I think there has to be more agency within, within developing countries. Now, what makes this more experimental work possible is the model which Keelan's foundation is based upon. Here he explains how it works. The Case Foundation um, was given an endowment which has now been invested into a portfolio, um, which is diverse and across a number of sectors. Um, the aim of the portfolio is to create sustainable cash flow and the surplus of which is invested into our philanthropic activities. Um, obviously, it's important for us that uh, we have a diverse range of risk um, within the, the um, portfolio as well. So... Um, we have 80 to 90 percent of our portfolio invested into extremely secure assets which provide us enough cash to spend on an annual basis and then we have a little bit invested which allows us to grow the portfolio as well which hopefully over time will enable us to take on bigger projects um, do what we do better our investment policy outlines certain ethical considerations which have to be taken during the course of our investing and in the course of our investment decisions um, so clearly we have a have a policy against investing in companies which, for example, might have an adverse effect on the environment or might have a questionable human rights record or, you know, themselves have, you know, carried out activities which may have harmed the communities which we're seeking to serve. So whilst enabling us to generate enough funds to invest on an annual basis, it's important for us to make sure that we're doing so in a in an ethical and sustainable fashion. So I think what this has allowed us to do is to be a bit more autonomous in our decision-making. Um, other organisations, for example, might fundraise. So you know, there's plenty of private foundations which have charity galas and dinners and sort of fun runs and whatever, and they, they, they sort of bring in money in that way. And Inherent within that is a level of accountability to a wide range of donors who themselves have very specific ideas about what philanthropy and development looks like. So for us, it's important to have a bit of freedom within that decision making. Um, and I think raising funds in-house and spending them within our own understanding of how we can create lasting change means that we can take greater risk. Um, if we were fundraising, for example, we may not be allowed to take on more ambitious projects, which might actually eventually result in the sort of change that we want to see, but might not be quite to some donor's appetite. From the point of view of someone who runs an organisation which depends on donor funding, I was sympathetic to this perspective. It can be frustrating to constantly convince people to do the things that you think are the right thing to do. At the same time, I can also see problems. Where's the accountability? Who has oversight of this funding model? I wanted to find out more about how the Kays Foundation balanced the principles of accountability in this innovative approach. I wanted us to have a certain amount of freedom with how we can spend our money. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want to be accountable either. Um, obviously, we're accountable to our board of trustees who make sure that 
we stick to the principles and the strategy and the mission which are outlined within the Case Foundation documents. Um, we're accountable to the Charity Commission, which means that we're by extension accountable to the UK public. But I think even more than that, we try to ensure that we're held to account by the communities which we're seeking to serve. Um, one thing that we're looking to implement, certainly within the next six to 12 months, is creating an advisory panel which is based in Kenya and is made up of a cross-section of stakeholders within the communities we're looking to serve. So if our programming is around early childhood development and, and education, then we'd want our board of advisors to be teachers and parents and policymakers and educationalists and, and academics from within Kenya. And I think this ensures that you know, we keep ourselves honest and we keep ourselves grounded. Um, I think this is very much an attempt that we're trying to make to get away from the donor-driven model of philanthropy whereby the overall aim ostensibly is to create development or to encourage development within certain countries, but ultimately have decision-making being taken by people who don't really understand the context of the country. You know, It becomes a situation where the tail wags the dog and we want to move away from this as far as possible, not just because we don't believe it's correct, but because we just don't think it'll ever work. Um, so I think it's important for us to be held to the highest level of account by the communities that we're looking to serve. And I think through the advisory panel and by funding ideas which are Kenyan, I think this enables us to do that to the greatest extent possible. I think that's a great point to end this episode on. I'd like to thank my guests, Andrew, Julie and Killen for their fascinating contributions. Links to the organisations and initiatives we mentioned are available on the GPD website. Just search in beta episode five. Until next time, goodbye.